Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And I have a legend human being on the show today. Dr. Bernie Siegel will be joining us here shortly. So please stay with us. And we're back. I'm going to welcome my friend, Dr. Bernie Siegel. I, I had him and Charlie, his grandson, on the show before. And now I've got Bernie on here. So let's bring him on. Dr. Siegel, welcome to the show. Thank you. So honored to have you back on here again. Like you shared so much wisdom the last time. And I know that there's a lot left in the tank. <laughs> It's, you know, it's my life. Yeah. Um, let me, you know, it's always hard for me to not talk because my angel does the talking, George. He uses me. So I'm not in charge of how much I say or what I say. It just comes popping out. But, um, I mean, now I'm forgetting what I was going to talk tell you. But um, it, it's just, I know, it, last night I was reading a book. I love Gandhi. And it mentioned him that he had one day of the week where he didn't talk to anybody. And somebody said to him, you know, how impressed they were, what was his message to people. And he wasn't talking. So he wrote a note. He said, my life is my message. Wow. And that simple statement. And I think if everybody thought that way, your life is your message and how you respond, what you do. Um, that's what's teaching, you know, your children, your friends, your patients, everybody else. And I always say, I try to live this sermon. And one more, why here I go, never stop. Um, go, go, hey, go me. for it. And by the way, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give you full screen. I'm still right. here, but I, I just want to give you full screen. After I would lecture, people would say to me, "I know we can trust you." I said, what are you talking about? You know, you can trust me. Your wife and children are sitting in the audience. If you weren't living what you're saying, you wouldn't have them sitting there listening to you. And that impressed me because how often the various famous people and politicians and others have their family sitting there. Right. Listening right. to what they're saying. And, uh, my family, they were my coaches and critics and uh, with senses of humor, uh, you know, they like when I say I'm getting an award, the kids would say, oh, they lowered their standards. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to write a book, call it out of my mind, um, you know, and my wife ultimately became part of the lectures because of her. Well, it's not a comedy, but a one liner, you know, stand up routine. Um, I always say like a, a female Henny Youngman and it was showing people the benefits of humor and laughter because yeah. you could see the audience change. They laugh for five or 10 minutes 
and everybody look healthier. So I would point out to them, be aware of how you feel now. And then after I got back on the stage, I would say, how do you feel now? And they all realized what a difference it had made and it affects survival statistics. I mean, studies have been done. So even laughing for no reason helps you survive and be healthier. Yeah. I love that. And you know, I know that just to give the audience some, um, you know, reference of where, where it all like started for you. Um, you, where were you born? You were born and raised in where, where again, you told me before, I don't remember. Foreign country called Brooklyn, New York. Oh, that's, yeah, that's such, that's a foreign. So, so, but you ended up going to med school and you became a pediatric surgeon, right? Yeah. And gen, what's called general surgery, but I specialized in pediatric surgery. Because okay. when I was at Yale, I realized nobody here had special training in caring for children. You know, mm -hmm. we'd have a child and they'd run and get a textbook on, okay, what do we do for this condition? And wow. I thought, this is crazy. So I went off to Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. Oh, and I got to tell you a story. It was either Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. And C. Everett Coop was at Philadelphia. And, and I wanted to go there because it was closer to home you know, yeah. where my family was, but I also knew Dr. Kieswetter out in Pittsburgh. So I went to both places. But when I walked into Coop's office, I thought, you know, I got to try to impress him and be very careful. And I walk in and this stern Dutchman says, you were born on the same day as a famous American. I said, yes, Dwight Eisenhower. He said, there's another one. I said, really, who is it? Me. And <laughs> that, that, created a whole different relationships. You know, suddenly I'm not afraid of this guy. Yeah. <laughs> he, we became lifetime friends and he said to me, he lost the coin toss. So I ended up in Pittsburgh. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and then I learned he also had graduated from Cornell where I went to medical school. Wow. So uh, we appeared once I was invited back as a speaker at, a, at the graduation and he was there to receive an award. So it was fun to be on the stage again with him and uh, share. So you did now was what made you decide to become a physician? I, I mean, was, was that, was well, were your parents in, in the, in the medical no. field or. No, you see, that's what's interesting. Um, as the Bible says, um, you know, if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. If you bring forth what's within you, it'll save you. And I think it's the same kind of balance. Mm. I told my parents I want to be a doctor. My father said, I can't help you if you want to be a doctor. Well, you know, he was a vice president at American Broadcasting Company and everything. He said, I can get you in there. No, but they said, okay, because my mother's message was always do what makes you happy. And so if I said, I want to be a doctor, I mean, I learned later from my past life it related to what the book is about, um, that I had been a knight who killed with a sword in Ireland. I'm sure it was there because of many coincidences. Uh, and I thought, wow, so now I'm using a knife to help people wow. not to kill and destroy. Now I didn't, consciously think of that when I said, I'll be a surgeon. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was an artist as a kid. So I thought I want to use my hands. 
you know, so yeah. being a surgeon would be good. And, um, you know, I love kids. So that, but what really redirected me in the medical area was a patient of mine. We were at a conference together and I was the only doctor in the audience. I couldn't believe it. You know, it was that yeah. Dr. Carl Simonton who wrote getting well again, it was to help cancer patients with imagery and other things. And I blew my mind, you know, what medicine is like. I'm the only doctor out of 150 people, but my patient sat with me. At a medical conference? Yeah. I mean, he was in Connecticut talking about his book and, you know, empowering cancer patients. And this is the sentence that she said, and I always wish I could find her again. She said, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you. But I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. That redirected my whole life because wow. suicide rate in doctors is higher than general population. Why? Because you can't cure people, all this pressure, this stuff going on. But when she said, I need to know how to live, I thought, wow, I can help everybody then. I'll help people live. Even if I can't cure their disease, I've done something for them. And that's what woke me up. You wow. send a hundred letters out saying, you want to live a longer, better life, come to a meeting. <clears throat> I expected hundreds of people to show up because the secretary did not say this is only for the people who received the letter. You know, right. you can't bring your friends and relatives. And 12 women showed up. That's it. I'm trying to help you live and you don't want to go to a meeting, but they were afraid of being failures. That's mm. you want me to read a book. I don't have time. I can't draw pictures. I can't this, I can't that. Cause I got into using art in the sense of draw your treatment, draw yourself a whole bunch of stuff, you know, that Carl Jung wrote about years ago. But again, the psychiatrists <clears throat> know, what doctors don't know about people. Right. Um, right. It's fascinating. When I sent an article to a medical journal, it came back saying it's interesting, but it's not appropriate for our journal. I sent it to a psychiatric journal. It came back saying, yes, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know this. <laughs> and see, that's when you think about it. You go to a doc. Well, this is a quote from Jung. See, it's saying the same thing hundred years ago. The diagnosis helps the doctor, but it doesn't help the patient. But the mm. other thing is the story for it alone shows human background and human suffering. And only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. So psychiatrists saw what I call survival behavior, you know, whether yeah. it's coronavirus, AIDS or anything else, um, they realize how personality can play a part in surviving. But when you go to a doctor, here's a pill. You know, yeah. I'm depressed. Here's a pill. Well, don't you think you ought to ask me why I'm depressed? If my right. house burned down and my whole family died, don't you think you ought to deal with that too? Not just here's yeah. a pill. Yes. That's like, you know, I, <clears throat> I, one of my favorite books and I recommend it to all my clients that I, if any coaching I do is, is called, um, <clears throat> and I know you've heard of it, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, absolutely. Victor Frankel. Yes. And, and <clears throat> I mean, look at what he went through right. and, and survived. And he realized that they could take everything from him except for his mind. Because even before his book came out, I started reading 
as a resource books by cancer, I mean, uh, concentration camp survivors. Wow. Because I realized they were telling us, uh, well, back to Gandhi, you know, my life is my message. So the people in the concentration camps who were helping other people in the concentration camp were more likely to survive. Right. And forget one story where there was a very sick fellow and a, um, they were told by the German guard, a train is coming to take you to a work camp. And everybody got, oh boy, I hope we, I can get on it because they thought no gas chamber, a work camp. And so he turned to this fellow and he said, look, you're not doing well. They gave me, you know, like the slip of paper that I could get on that train, but here you take it and you go because you need better conditions with right. your bad health. What he learned was it was going to a gas chamber. Yeah. They were lied to, but yeah. you thought, why did that guy survive? Because he cared about somebody else. Right. If he had been selfish, he, he wouldn't be alive today. And those are the messages I think that we all need to know. Uh, you know, your head and your heart need to be connected. And that when people, as one young lady said, when you live in your heart, magic happens. So it's good for you in every single way. You know, I um, belong to a fellowship um, of, of recovering individuals with 18 years of eight. I have 18 years of, of sobriety now. And, and it is the, the very thing that the entire recovery movement is built on. Right. If you want long-term sobriety, give it away to other people and you get to keep it. Right. Like it, it's, it's the, it's, that's what it's about. Yeah, what's that? What's the list called um, that AA has? The 12 steps. Yeah. The 12 steps. You yeah, see, yeah. When I re read that. I thought, yeah, they're saying the same thing. You can throw <laughs> steps to a cancer patient and say, live this message. And then I have to tell you one more crazy story because, you know, I'm on stage. People say to me, how do you handle stress? And one night I'm kidding around. I said, well, drugs and alcohol. <laughs> and, um, you know, I figured they know I'm kidding. And then I go to the men's room after the lecture and the door flew open. Bam. And this guy comes running in, you know, you're coming with me. I thought, holy shit. I, I mean, he's going to mug me, kill me, shoot me, beat me up. What is going on here? He's screaming, ranting, raving. And I said, what is it? What did I do? He said, I'm taking you to an AA meeting. <laughs> I said, I am sorry. I was kidding. I realize now it's not a joke to you and I'll never do that again. But tell you, he scared me because uh, I'm sure, you know, he's going to be steal your money, doing something. Yeah, right, right. He's probably but, like, dude, you're, you're in denial. I learned it's not a joke. No. You know, he's dealing with it. And, and I yeah. learned to deal with people's experience and appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Meet, meet them where they are. And I, again, I, I know, like for me, I joke around about it now, but you know, back then when I first got sober, it was not a joking matter. Like it just what, but you know, I mean, look, I, I think that you're, I, I love the message that you have. And so here you are working and 
you know, my wife's brother was diagnosed with um, leukemia when he was six years old. And, and so she, her, and he's 46 now, but he's had bouts of cancer off and on his whole life. And, 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 you know, he's, they spent a lot of time at children's hospital in Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you saw those, those young patients coming in and you saw the, the grief and the pain because, you know, they, their family saw a lot of families that lost their children to, to, yeah. to cancer, and, you know, and you experienced that. What was that like? Well, through that? it was painful, but yeah. the thing I learned is to treat them like children. I, I my website, Bernie Siegel MD, I have an article called deceiving people into health because I learned that I could lie to kids and they would believe me and do well, see? And the example I always give is, you take an alcohol sponge, you rub their skin and say, this is gonna numb your skin, you won't feel the needle, don't worry. And 80% of the kids say, wow, why don't the other doctors do that? <laughs> you know, 20% say, I felt it. I say, well, it must've been a bad, you know, sponge, I'm sorry. but. Yeah. It, it impressed me. So I lied to children for their benefit. Yeah. And they were never upset with me for helping them. Um, oh, one kid, it wasn't my patient. I always remember he had a water gun in his hospital room and he had a sign over his bed, intern shot on sight. Because people <laughs> would come in and he'd squirt them. But the nurses knew he was a survivor. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they didn't take the gun away from him. He was a, you know, a big hit. And yeah. in that way, I learned to help the kids and uh, and care for them. I'd carry them into the operating room. They didn't have to ride the stretcher, you know, so they knew. Oh, and one young lady, this was the greatest gift of all. You're my CD. I said, what the hell are you talking about? I'm a CD. You're my chosen dad. Oh, wow. And once she said that to me, I realized that's what I'm going to do. So I would say to kids, adults, anybody who was feeling desperate and alone, I'll be your chosen father. I will love you. And wow. I have, I can hold them up in front of you. But from about 30 years ago, she said, I got a phone call saying, do you have Jack Kevorkian's phone number? I want to be dead. I have a brain tumor. My father has sexually abused me. I want to be dead. Wow. Walter, I said, I don't have Jack Kevorkian's phone number. You know, I don't, didn't really like what he was doing. It was like he was taking charge of death and killing people. Yeah. Um, right. I, I don't mind helping people die when they're ready, but I don't kill them. Um, and I said to her, I love you. You're a child of God. And she's alive and well today and sends me all these cards. And the one one of the cards amongst many is Happy Father's Day to my bonus dad. Uh, and I thought that's great from chosen to bonus. But I'm getting cards from her all the time. And and it's like a package of love. It it is such a gift to me to open this and boom, Becky has sent me another card. And she's from Texas and I did meet her, you know, when I was down there. So it's real. But if we do that with each other, let the other person you know you love them.
what a difference it makes in their life. And I changed my office too. My desk went against the wall and people would come in and say, this doesn't seem like a doctor's office. I say, yeah, because I'm not separating myself from you. Wow. And when you and ask these- doctors, well, think one more thing that people can use. I could say to you, you know, draw yourself working at, at interviews. Draw yourself working as a doctor. What blew my mind the first time I did that was that this whole, like a hundred medical students, 98 of them drew themselves sitting behind a desk with a diploma on the wall and no other person in the room. One drew only equipment like computers and instruments. One drew himself kneeling in front of a wheelchair, handing a lady a tissue with his arm around her. Wow. That's being a doctor. He's handing her a tissue. That's what she needs right now. And all the others are, you know, I'm a doctor. They're treating diseases. Yeah. It's a, our way behind in, in, in paying attention to that. Yeah. You know, hey, why do you want to be a doctor and, and look at what it's going to mean to you. And then the suicide rate would go down too uh, amongst doctors. Yeah. So what do you think? Uh, you know, I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in my, my sister is a, um, she's a nurse practitioner, um, which is pretty much a doctor. <laughs> I think, I don't know, but, um, you know, I, I'm a huge believer in the placebo that the, what the mind believes the body will follow. Right. And, and yet there are these things. And I know that like, Dr. Wayne Dyer, who was one of my my heroes, and I know he died at a young age of cancer. And I thought I thought to myself many, many times, why? Because he knew he knew that he could heal himself. He knew he had this this infinite power, but yet he he died. Why? Well, first, I always say to people, death is not a failure. We're all going to die. And. The key, see, if he had come into my office, I would have said, what's going on the last couple of years in your life? See, mm-hmm. why do you have cancer now? Why didn't you have it 10 years ago? Why don't you have it 10 years from now? And that's when doctors would say to me, why are you blaming your patients? And I said, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you keep asking them what's going on in your life. Yes, that's what makes them vulnerable. What affects right. System, your stress hormones. Monday morning, we had more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. Is it Monday? No, it's how you feel about your job. So you don't want to go to work. You don't like your life. Your body does you a favor. I'll get you out of here. We'll get you sick. We'll get you dead too, and then you'll feel well. Because we are not our bodies. I mean, I write about things I have experienced which yeah. includes a near-death experience as a four-year-old choking on a toy. I had taken it apart, imitating some guys who were working in our house at that time. Yeah. They had nails in their mouth in those days. Uh, you know, they'd, yeah. they'd go bang, bang. And I aspirated and was choking to death and left yeah. my body and had the near-death experience. But the fascinating thing to me was, because as a four-year-old, I didn't know this was unusual. You know, mm. I didn't run around telling everybody what happened because I thought everybody knows about this. But I always referred to it when I told the story as the kid on the bed. 
And one day I thought to myself, why don't you say yourself? You see, because I would say, I looked at down the kid on the bed. Why don't you say me or yourself? And I realized, because I am not that body. Oh, wow. It really struck me. Wow. I'm the body. I'm the consciousness, the spirit that's, you know, floating around <laughs> the bedroom. And mm -hmm. I always laugh too, because I have an angel, literally, as I told you, his name is George. And um, the kid on the bed vomited and all the pieces came flying out and he started breathing again. And I was sucked back into his body, mad as hell. Because the first words out of my mouth were, who did that? Because I tell you, every four-year-old is upset when they don't die, if you know what I mean. Because as a four-year-old, when you're out of your body, floating around, having a wonderful time, seeing, thinking, who the hell wants to go back? And, uh, and my mother- You said who did that? Into the room. Um, didn't want a wonderful explanation of my fantastic experience, you know? Cause she knew I almost choked to death, seeing the pieces, my vomit, everything. But I realized I had a Heimlich maneuver done by my angel. I swear to God and up comes everything and I'm breathing again. Um, but again, you realize you're not your body and, and it gives you a different feeling. So that's why I got into the past lives. You see that our consciousness is recycled. Um, what do I mean by that? I, I mean that it's not me coming back five times, but it's what I have experienced that is picked up by people who follow me. And a prime example, I always say, I was watching a five-year-old on television. He was about to play the violin and the words he said really hit me in the heart because he said, when I first time I saw a violin, I just felt so attached and attracted to it. I ran over and grabbed it and hugged it. Now, I know that in that kid is a violinist. Yeah. So that's why he ran over and grabbed it. And at five years old, is standing there in a, on television in front of an orchestra playing a violin. They, yeah. We've all seen that too. You know, you leave me at the piano for three years, I can't you know, work it out, but <laughs> I would paint portraits and not have a problem. You know, there, there, I'm sure there's also an artist in me. Um, and that's part, another reason I became a surgeon. I want to use my hands and help people. But I think all of us need to understand that we're multiple personalities. Let's put it that way. And to pay attention to our desires, what, rewards us what's uncomfortable get to know yourself and what's within you what about the what about i mean because you're talking about things that go against um a lot of traditional christian beliefs i know for <laughs> sure um uh, the the and I, I i i i hear you i i think you're spot on but there are a lot of people that may watch this or hear you or or and read about this and go no we we live once and then we go to heaven or we go to hell and and i was going to say what goes to heaven is your consciousness they yeah 
people talk about going to the light and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And the other is, is a line from Maimonides. I always like to share from a thousand years ago. He said, disease isn't a loss. Well, is a loss of health. It's not God punishing you or giving you something, right. but it's a loss of health. And our job is to help our neighbor find what they have lost. Mm. Because I won't mention names, get into more trouble, but some world-renowned clergy will say things like when they, people ask, does God want me to have cancer? Not necessarily. I thought, what are you talking about? Not necessarily. Well, supposing you win the lottery and you stop going to church and you got all the money you need and what you want, God will say, oh, I know how to get him back. I'll give him cancer. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, to listen to clergy say things like that just blows yeah. my mind. I'm it's with you. Of health. And the old statement was, if people, Maimonides again, which is so true, if people took as good care of themselves, they do their animals, they'd suffer fewer illnesses. And um, literally, I know people uh, who have written letters to Cat Fancy Magazine saying, Doug and I now smoke in the yard. We're not killing our cats anymore. We hope you're not <laughs> killing yours. Because her cat died of lung cancer. The others are having trouble breathing. And when I read that, and the magazine didn't say, hey, folks, you're killing yourselves, you know. Wow. Yeah. It, it's unbelievable. But wow. we need, and, and see, this is the gift. <clears throat> Love yourself. Imagine having polio as a child and having a resulting deformity. And then you develop a neurological disease and you're dying. She said, I don't want to die hating my body. So I laid down naked in front of a mirror and started loving myself. And she said, inch by inch, I would love my toes, my feet, my ankles. And guess what happened? Her disease went into complete remission and she didn't die. <clears throat> but think of that, people going in front of a mirror and saying, I love you. What a difference, yeah. Versus, you know, that is so, that is so, I don't, you don't hear physicians talk like you are. <laughs> I mean, it's. Well, it's, that's right. I haven't had a normal life. Okay. Right. I have parents who love me. I grew up with do what makes you happy. Yeah. Troubles, God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. And you're here to help make the world a better place for people. And that's because my parents I mean, went through very difficult times, escaping yeah. from Russia. Uh, my father's father died of tuberculosis, leaving a big family with nothing. Um, so he said, I learned what was important about life. And, and so they were wonderful people who drove me nuts as a kid because I wasn't looking for philosophy. Ma, I had a horrible day at school. God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. <laughs> yeah. and, and Norman Vincent Peale, his statement, he said from his mother was, Norman, if God slams one door further down the corridor, another will be open. Yeah. But see, that's why you end up who you are. You're growing up with that kind of therapy. Yeah. And, uh, and you find out, you know, my mother was right because things would happen. And you'd say, well, I always called spiritual flat tire. You get a flat 
And I've had these things happen on the way to the airport. And you know, well, you're going to miss your plane. But I'd say, yeah, but what if you find out the plane you missed crashed? Right. I'm going to take the tire home and hang it up in the living room, you know? So <laughs> I'd say, I, I try to live the sermon. Right. And many times, just when I'm thinking I'm going to miss the plane, some guy pulls up, says, yeah, you need help? And they change the tire in two seconds, you know, yeah. which I yeah. never have done. Yeah, because yeah. one it was funny, this lady was driving us to the airport and she said, oh, the jack is in my husband's car. Oh, thanks, lady. <laughs> When a guy pulled up and changed the tire in two minutes and we made the plane. And again, yeah. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's message to me, Borani, there are no coincidences. And what is she trying to say? That, well, what Jung said, the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. So <clears throat> I got on one plane where uh, they said, we're going up to Canada. Well, there's a blizzard up there. We don't know if we can land at the airport uh, because of conditions. So we need volunteers to leave the plane so we have extra fuel. Well, by the time the pilot finished this scary message, everybody in the plane got off the plane except for my wife and I and another couple. And so while we were flying, we were talking to the pilots and, you know, we were just a small group of people. Yeah. And I hear the pilot say, yeah, I've got my next flight. And I said, that's the flight we have to get on. He said, well, they'll be holding it for me. So you don't have to worry. And I thought, who figured that one out? And when we got to the airport, they were telling me, well, that left an hour ago. No, it didn't. Here's the pilot. You know, because we walked together. And those are the things that really amazed me. Yeah. Things. I had a flat tire the other day at our town dump. I hit some kind of nail or something. Who pulls up behind me? Hey, I'm your neighbor. Let me help you. And wow. working on changing the tire and things like that. And it's like, how do you, we both end up at the dump at the same moment. And I've got help automatically. Serendipitous. It's all, it, there's serendipity everywhere. And I think that you, when you're looking for it, you find it and you look for it in life. And well, I don't look, I mean, but you have to have a quiet mind. Right. I mean, somebody's asking me, can you talk about the importance of self-talk? Yeah, I wanted to ask about what is that. that. What do you mean by self-talk? The conversations you have with yourself. Oh, I hear voices. It's not yeah. me. It's God talking to me. Yeah. I mean, the day my father was going to die, the voice said to me, how did your parents meet? And I mean, literally, I hear a voice. I'm taking a walk. I hear the voice. How did your parents meet? I don't know. Ask your mother when you get to the hospital. So when I walk in, see, and that's George again. I mean, my thought was you walk in the hospital room, your father's in bed, your mother's sitting there, and give him a hug, say, I love you. What does George say? How did you two meet? And I, I was about to apologize to say, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be rude. I want to. And my mother started telling the story. She And it ended in, your father lost the coin toss and had to take me. She was with a bunch of girls she didn't know, had a terrible reputation. She was on vacation and on the beach. Wow. That was their first date. The second date, he took her to, for a little boat ride in Central Park. And the guy yelled, you pay before you take the boat. So he let go of my mother in the boat and she fell into the lake. <laughs> and 
I mean, I'm thinking, what the hell do you keep going out with this guy for? Right. But he died laughing, looking so healthy. I thought he was going to say, I'm not dying today. This is fun. I'll see you tomorrow. But when the last person, see again, no coincidence, consciousness, he knows who's coming. Not because we told him, he knows. The last person who said they were coming walked in, we said her name. He took his last breath and died. Looking so healthy, I, it was incredible. Because the color came back in his face, his big smile. Uh, wow. And again, even though you'd say he was basically in a coma, he can hear. And people hear you under anesthesia too. I, I learned that one and started talking to them in the operating room. And it affected, you could, and believe me, I did all these things. You could say to somebody, I want your heartbeat to be 72. And the monitor would go to 72, you know? Wow. And uh, they'd have an arrhythmia. I'd say, oh, listen to the beautiful music. What a nice steady rhythm. And the heart would go back to normal. And one, the most extreme. And this is in the OR? Or, yeah, see, at first, all the anesthesiologists saying, Barney, what are you talking for? They're asleep, they're anesthetized. <laughs> but then, when a patient wakes up and says, I didn't hear the end of the joke, the anesthesiologist said, What are you talking about? And it was a joke that he had said in the operating room, and the patient said it, but he said, I didn't hear the last line. But this one, wow. and again, I don't make up stories. The anesthesiologist said, Barney, his heart stopped. And so he started working to try to get it going. And he stepped yeah. a minute. He said, I can't. It's, I'm going to call for a stretcher to take him to the morgue. I can't get his heart started again. So crazy Siegel, I yelled out loud, Johnny, it's not your time yet. Come on back. And his heart started beating again and came back to normal. And the anesthesiologist, I never forget him saying, Bernie, I love working with you <laughs> <laughs> because I'm so nuts. Things could be made to happen. That is so awesome, man. I, I see. I, you know, it's mind body. Let's put it that way. So yeah. keep talking to yourself, loving yourself. Because um, even I, my image, I mean, I often think, who's that guy in the bathroom? Because I, I, I'm not him. I'm still this like young, you know, crazy kid. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's he doing here? <laughs> I, I, and I, your first, so your first book is called Love, Medicine, and Miracles, right? Yes. And that was in the 80s? Yes. That was sharing the experiences of people who didn't die when they were supposed to, say, wow. And leave your troubles to God. Um, you see, when people did, like talking to yourself, people did what made them happy. They accepted the fact, oh, I have a few months to live. Okay, then I'm not going through all this crazy treatment. I'm moving to Colorado. I'm getting a dog. Um, I'm going to go home and make the world beautiful. That was from a landscaper. Um, you know, they were all, well, a lawyer. I'm going to go play my violin because he became a lawyer because his parents wanted a lawyer wow. and none of them died they when they were supposed to or buying a house on the ocean this multi-millionaire it was fascinating his son drove me crazy you gotta help my father 
And when they drive you crazy, I do. See, I know that what, you know, the intensity they have. So we yeah. met down in Florida and we talked and uh, he bought a house um, on the ocean, which he could have afforded for a decade or more yeah. and meditated with my tapes and things like that. And instead of dying in three months, he lived over five years. Oh, and the other thing I got such a kick out of, I'm back in Miami and he's going to introduce me, he said at the talk. So he shows up looking so casual at this big fancy lecture. I said, why are you dressed like that? He said, when they tell you, you have a few months to live, you cancel the dress code at work. <laughs> he said, I told all my employees, I don't care what you wear, just come yeah. to work. And yeah, awesome. five years and had a real impact on the hospital yeah. because they realized it's not their wonderful treatment. And one lady who came up from North Carolina, because a relative of hers was helping my father-in-law who had injured his spinal cord. And uh, she said, oh, Bernard, Dr. Siegel's making people well all the time, come on up here. I said, you know, I mean, I can't promise people things. What are you talking about? And right. anyway, she came up and she had leukemia. And I said, uh, I'm a surgeon, so, I'll get an oncologist to see you. I admit her to the hospital, sat with her on the bed, hugged her and so forth. Then an oncologist friend comes over who by now had learned about my crazy patients and said, Bernie, I agree with her doctor. She has about two months to live, but I know you and your crazy patients. So I'll give her hope. And then he'd had her come in each week to get some chemo and he'd send me a note doing well, doing wow. very well. By the sixth week, the note said, in complete remission. And her answer was, oh yeah, Dr. Siegel sat on my bed and hugged me. I knew I'd get better. <laughs> you know, that's when you realize who the hell knows what's going on in the body, but how much the mind has to do with the message your body is getting. Yeah. I'll bet you never, I'll bet you I, never. This one, the guy who went to Colorado, I called up a year later to say, why didn't you invite me to the funeral? I told you I want to come and I know him well. He answered the phone. He said, it was so beautiful here. I forgot to die. Wow. You know, that's why, you know, I have no trouble giving people hope that when they're not worried about failing, um, then we can do something with them. I love what Charlie. Let me answer a call-in question. It's a good one. Uh, is there something you say to yourself each day? Is there something that you pray or that you meditate on each day? I talk to God every day. There's something called hispoditus, H-I-S-B-O-D-E-T-U-S. It's like walking in nature and talking to God. What is that again? H-I-S? I, I came across that word, hispoditus, H-I-S. B-O-D-E-D-U-S. And I take the dog. I always, I mean, had dogs forever. Our house was a zoo. That's one of my books too. Love animals and miracles, but what they teach us and everything else. But we go out for a walk in the morning and I talk to God every morning. And I learn what I'm like by how I talk to God. You know what I mean? At first you may start out, oh, you got to cure me. You got to make me well. I need money. I need it. 
Um, now I'm thankful for God, for all I have been given. And this I've learned from God. A perfect world is not creation. It's a magic trick. You're here to live and learn. See, if we had a perfect world, everybody would be bored out of their mind. But when you're here participating, I always say, like being God's right arm. Oh, and I'll help everybody get into heaven. Because when you get to heaven, there's an admission line. You get to the head of the line, they say, you're next. How do you want to be introduced to God? I am a New York lawyer. Come back when you know who you are. Okay. Right. Next person. How do you want to be introduced to God? Well, I'm one of God's children. Come on in. See? Or I am God. Yes, come on in. But when you're busy telling everybody how important you are, and that's something I get a kick out of, in a sense, in cemeteries, because the men so often have all their famous things they did. I went to this college, high honors. I ran this business. I had a lot of money, you know. Uh, yeah. And then next to them, it, it says, and, you know, his wife. It never says her husband, you know, it's always. <laughs> but, they, you know, the wife is living 10 to 20 years longer and there's nothing there about where she went to college or how many kids she had or what she did, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Her husband. <laughs> that is so funny. So, wow. So I want to, I do want to talk a little bit about um, the new book that you have that that's being released on and I'm right. going to throw it on the, on the screen here. Um, oh yes. Yeah. Three men. Uh, six lives. What I call the book is what I call um, a true novel, you know, or like it, it, it's, it's fiction in the sense of the characters I made, but not in the sense of the stories that they're displaying. Right. Like the one character is a surgeon and that was my experience, uh, you know, with my past life killing with the sword. And I can yeah. tell you that was one of the most emotional traumatic things that's ever happened to me to re-experience that because my wife was the young woman I killed because I didn't have faith in my Lord. And originally I used that word as the Lord of my castle. But when I went to get therapy because of the emotional trauma, uh, James Hillman, the Jungian therapist said, Bernie, you hear what you're saying? What do you mean? You keep saying my Lord asked me to kill the neighbor's daughter. I said, yes, the Lord of the castle. He said, no, Bernie, it's your Lord. Wow. Because I remember that? saying, what if I don't kill her? Then I'll kill you. And that's when I said, Abraham and Jesus have always been a problem for me. Why did they allow the Lord's you know, decision to come about? Why didn't Abraham say, take me, leave the kid alone? Right. But he had faith and his kid did survive. And, you know, I said, if I were Jesus, I would have jumped off the cross to impress everybody and said, do you see what I can accomplish? Um, you know, but I had to learn about faith because when I said, what if I don't kill her? I'll kill you. Okay, I'm going. And I really felt that in this life, well, this story will tell you why. A guy buys a farm. He's plowing, hits something, pulls it up. 
It's a box of treasure. So he calls the guy he bought it from and says, here, this is on your farm. You know, it's not mine. And the guy says, no, you bought the farm. It's yours now. And they're standing there yelling at each other. It's yours. It's yours. And the neighbor comes by and says, what the hell are you fighting about? You know, and they tell him, he said, look, you have a son, you have a daughter, tell him to get married and give him this as a present. And when I read that story, it was like, ah, oh. my wife and I got married. These two lords have nothing to fight over anymore because the land they were fighting over would be our wedding present. We could live there and they would all be one family now. Wow. And we had a really special marriage. Uh, Oh, but I sense of humor. You know, I said my wife did stand up. A lot of women would say to her afterwards, they loved what she had to say. And isn't it nice? What's it like being married to him? And she said, a struggle. And they look at her, a struggle. And I always nod my head because she was bringing me up, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and women would say a struggle. It's like, oh, my God. But the thing I loved is, when people would meet, I'd say, how many years have you been married? I said, we've had 40 wonderful years and 40 out of 63 isn't too bad. And then again, oh, <laughs> you were married with you. We married 63, I think, yeah. Wow. We got married when we were basically kids. I was still in school. Yeah, my father was really nice because, uh, see, he had said to me, if I don't want to help you, I'll say no. Because I didn't have any money. Um, you know, I want to go to college. I want to go to medical school. And I would ask him and he kept saying yes. And when I said, I feel very guilty, he said, I'll say no, if I can't help you or don't want to. And then I said to him, I want to get married. So he said, okay. But I can tell you the first apartment we lived in, my mother said, why are you living in this place? I said, cause dad's paying the rent. See, that was my guilt. I mean, <laughs> oh, it was a, an old building, no elevators, nothing. Neighbors who were nuts. Um, uh, really funny. In Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, well, it was in Forest Hills. Yeah. Okay. My wife finally, when she finished college, went off to teach in Long Island, and I would take the subway into Manhattan to go to medical school. Wow. Um, but um, it was yeah, and she would bring home. We've always been into animals, and I really felt this because I killed her dog. That's what woke her up in, in my past life when I killed her. Her dog was in the bedroom with her, and I didn't want to be attacked by him because he got up and growled, so I killed him, and that noise woke her up because I wanted to kill her in her sleep and not have her feel pain. Um, and this is in a past life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's in there. You see... I mean, I'll tell you some of the story, but think, why would you become a psychiatrist? What if in your past life, what you did led to people dying or committing suicide? See? Wow. It could be an accident, a suicide. You know, the guilt that you're carrying. So now you want to help people. Why would you want to be head of a mafia group? Because what if in your past life, your family was attacked and murdered? by another tribe and say, um, well, I'm not going to let that happen this time. And I know that those are things that affect our choices. And when I said, even in Ireland, I've seen so many coincidences about Ireland that I really felt the connection. I mean, one, I got to mention also a woman, one of our group members was in labor 
and uh, prematurely. So she called me and said, Barney, can you come to the hospital and help me? I'm going to have a miscarriage. So I went there and the room was so filled with panic and grief that I screamed at everybody. I said, get out of here. Because I thought they're inducing this in her by their attitude. And every doctor, nurse, and family member, I scared the hell out of them, screaming, get out of here. So they left the room. And I got her to quiet down, meditate, start loving her body, communicate with her uterus, send it love, calm it down. And in about 15, 20 minutes, her labor stopped. And I let everybody back in the room. Months go by, I get a phone call. Bernie, I just gave birth to a boy and we're naming him after you, but we're Irish. So we're calling him Brady. <laughs> and that was no coincidence either, you know? And uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I go down to the shelter. I hear a voice tell me, go to the animal shelter also. And so all the dogs I adopt and cats uh, always have a significant name. And I walked in one day. What's his name? Oh, he just came this morning. His name is Brady. You see? So I say, I'll take him home. Wow. I wrote a book um, called Buddy's Candle to get people to understand that your grief when you lose a loved one puts out their celestial candle. Okay. Yeah. And after... I finished the book. I went out of the house with our other dog to walk. And I heard the voice say, go to the animal shelter. So I go down there. I walk in sitting right by the door that you enter is a dog. So what popped out of my mouth was, what's his name? Oh, his name is Buddy. He's been here less than 15 minutes. I said, I'll take him home. Wow. You know what I mean? And, and oh, <laughs> wow. because I learned to not tell them the names of people in the family because my father's name was Simon and I've had a dog named Simon, a cat named Simon. And I don't know whether they're lying to me or not, you know, because <laughs> when he says, what's his name? Say Simon and he'll take it home. <laughs> um, That's funny. So this, this is um, from what this is your first fiction book that yes. you wrote. What I call, yeah, it's it's a, a non-fiction novel. I mean, what's fictitious are the people. Okay. I created them, but what's true are the stories. So it is a fiction novel, but there's truth in it because I say, whether it's my body memories, um, I don't know if time for all these stories, but my mother was very sick, shouldn't have a kid. Uh, couldn't deliver. They finally pulled me out after a couple of weeks of her screaming in pain in the hospital. And she said, they handed me a purple melon, not a child. So they hid me in a carriage covered. And I said, Ma, how did I turn out to be reasonably normal? If nobody's touching me, you're hiding me that, that, you know, kids can die of infections when that happens. And she said, Oh, my mother took you. Thank God for grandmothers. She right. said, Mother took you, poured oil all over you, and pushed everything back where it belonged four and five times a day. And then I realized I was the most loved kid on the planet. Can you imagine getting massaged by your grandmother five times a day? Wow. And the proof of body memories, you know, organ transplants and others. 
Um, 50 years later, my wife and I go to get a massage. The husband was very busy. So he said, do you mind if my wife did one of you? I said, fine. My wife, you know, likes to have you do it. I'll have your wife. massage. She's massaging my bald head, shaved head. And I went into a trance and went back to being a child again because she put oil on and is massaging. It was just like that kid. Yeah. And I was in bliss. And after about, I don't know, 10 minutes or more, I opened my eyes and the room was filled with people. I said, oh, what the gosh. hell are y'all doing here? Her husband was standing there at the foot of the table. He said, oh my God. He said, we thought you had a heart attack or a stroke. We couldn't communicate with you. And I said, I have a story to tell you. I went back to being a child. I couldn't talk to you. Yeah. But you wow. see, that, that's why I'm different. I have had all these things happen to me. Yeah. And I can't deny what happened. Even right. if you said, how do you explain it? I don't have to explain it. I can't explain creation. It's right. a miracle. I don't know why leaves are green and the sky is blue, you know, but I know the intelligence. I have watched a seed paved over, grow up, push through the pavement and blossom. And I had our whole family come to look at it. I said, here's a therapy group for you. Because if you're that seed, you keep pushing, you break through. But not only that, how did the seed know which way was up? And that's when I look into it scientifically and they say, yes, oh, seeds can sense gravity. Well, who, you know, I mean, who thought of that one? And, and so, again, you know, well, I say to people, what's a miracle? You cut yourself and you put a Band-Aid over it. You don't say, I'm going to bleed to death. How does your body know what to do? But there's intelligence. Um, and that's the key. Uh, you know, God is loving, intelligent, conscious energy. That's my definition of God. Loving, intelligent, conscious energy energy right is <laughs> needed to create okay so my my question for you uh, that i think a lot of people would ask is how does one i mean i think i know the answer so it's somewhat of a rhetorical question for me i've meditated for 17 years every morning of my life i i will not miss it i i, I go into this into meditation every morning but there's so many people that i've said you need to learn you just need to start meditate like meditate you don't need to learn to meditate it's there right. you just go do it and 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 people go that that's crazy what do you talk the bible doesn't say anything about that actually yes it does <laughs> but but anyway so what what is how do people find that intelligence that you and I both, we know that it's already there inside of everyone, but how, what do you say? You have to quiet your mind, right? Stop thinking. That's the key. Yeah. And when you stop thinking, then the consciousness, God can talk to you. God yeah. speaks in dreams and symbols. They, Go to sleep. God talks to you. I mean, I've been given information in my dreams that when I wake up, I go and do it. See? And the, with the drawings. 
That I learned again from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Simple. I drew a scene for her. Bernie, what are you covering up? What are you talking about? You used a white crayon on a white piece of paper. You didn't need the white crayon. You added a layer. And I was covering up all my feelings and emotions. See? Why is 11 important? What are you asking me that for? You have 11 trees. And there was an answer to that. So I went back to the hospital with crayons and got people to draw pictures. They would draw anatomy. They would literally tell me their diagnosis. Uh, they made a coloring book, one of the anesthesiologists, because for the kids I was operating on. And um, one of them I showed him because it says, you'll meet an anesthesiologist who's wearing an outfit that looks like green pajamas. The kid drew him in red. Wow. And the anesthesiologist said, oh, yeah, Bernie, his mother has muscular dystrophy. He can have an adverse reaction that threatens his life to muscle relaxants. I said, look at the last page. If he draws himself purple, spiritual color, he's going home. I'm not operating on him. You see, now he didn't draw himself purple. He drew himself, I'm not happy having an operation, you know. Um, and so we went ahead and did it. But it changed everybody because they saw what patients drew. Even if they, it's like you draw the sails on a boat and they look like breasts. You know what I mean? So even... Yeah anatomy would show up and the people didn't know the anatomy, but as a doctor, I'd look at it and boy, wow, you know, you know, so there were many people I operated on because of their drawing, you know, did they have appendicitis and what they put on the paper says yes. Um, or what they put on the paper said no. So I'd watch them and wait with them. And uh, that affected everybody. And then I learned, of course, about Jung and Jungian therapists and others who had, there was one book called Life Paints Its Own Span by Susan Bach. I went to London to meet with her. And I never forget her saying to me, oh, Jung was fascinated by the somatic aspects. I said, yes, he's not an art therapist. He knows anatomy, he's a doctor. So he sees things that you don't see. But she showed me, I mean, life paints its own span. These were kids don't have a problem drawing pictures. They're not worried about, I'm not an artist like the mother is say. Yeah. And so they showed when they were ready to die with, well, like one child that I was helping the mother, a purple kite, you know, going up in the sky or a purple balloon. And I'd say, take your daughter home and love her. She's ready to go. And I got a call because I said, there are seven like pretty colorful things and I don't know what they mean. Uh, but her mother called me seven days later and said, Bernie, today's my birthday. Amber woke up and said, mom, I'm dying today as a gift to you to free you from all the trouble. And I have her drawing hanging in my house, but Jeez. you see how much that helped people. Well, like one husband, he's hanging on to a purple kite in the wife's drawing. I said to the wife, you're ready to go, but he can't let go. So let's talk to him. And he said, yeah, my wife's a nurse. She takes care of everything. If she dies, I'm dead. I don't know how to do a damn thing. So she said, I won't die. I'll train you. And I don't know whether it was a few months or weeks or whatever, but I remember him coming in saying, okay, honey, I cut the string. If you need to go, it's okay. And she said, fine, I'll die Thursday when the kids get here from California. And as I mentioned, like my father, I said, he said, I need to get out of here. 
So when do you want to go? He said, I'll die Sunday. <laughs> and that's when we had the big party and he died Sunday. Wow. Yeah. So, so. <clears throat> oh, and let me add this for those with loved ones. I knew my mother would never die with me in the room. Okay. Cause she had leukemia too and amazed all her doctors by teaching them what her son was talking about because she didn't die. And I forgot she had leukemia. One day she said to me, I got to go to get a blood count for what? Don't you remember? I have leukemia. I said, ma, you want to know something? I don't remember because she never acted sick. She was leaving the message, but I knew she wouldn't die with me in her room. See, that would be letting me down. So I said to people, I'm not being a bad son. I love my mother, but I know she won't die with me here. And sure enough, one of the times I stepped outside for 15 minutes, half an hour, I came back and they said, yep, you know, she died. Wow. So what, what about the people though, that think that that's it? Like, you know, there, there are people who lose their children and, and, um, I know people personally that have lost a child that they, they live in this sadness and grief for the rest of their yeah, life. I, I wrote Buddy's Candle. What are you doing to your loved one when you're walking around grieving and miserable all the time? They're looking down saying, Hey, come on, enjoy life. Don't do that. Look what you're doing to me. You're putting my candle out with your tears. Say, oh. That's the line from the story that, um, that just gave me chills. I went to heaven and cause I was grieving over my father's death. And the angel said, sit down, Bernie. Here's a parade of fathers who have died this month. And they all came by carrying this gorgeous candle, beautiful robes. And I said, Hey, look, there's a guy coming with a dark candle. And the angel said, so go light it. And I run up and it's my father. I said, dad, I'm here to light your candle. He said, they do, but your tears keep putting it out. Oh my God. That is why I wrote that story. Say, Wow. Um, and that freed me. But I can also tell you that my wife died two and a half years ago, peacefully in her sleep. Oh, it was a shock for me because in the morning I went to wake her up and found she had died quietly that night. But she has been in touch with me since in, in symbolic ways. Um, she used to kiss me goodnight. Now, how can she kiss you goodnight? Blow out a candle. I, I get into bed and I hear, and then I feel a breeze on my face and there's nobody in the room. Wow. Okay. I hear her voice one night. I, I mean, I don't remember what she said. Well, I guess I was hear her going mm, uh, like she's shifting around in the bed. So I sat up and I said, do you need any help? Oh, and then I realized, Hey, stupid. She's dead. You know, but I mean, to get up and say that you can imagine how much it sounded like her. And wow. the other is finding we were married on the 11th and she was born on nine, nine. I have found usually I'm wearing a shirt with a pocket and I have her picture over my heart and all the dimes and pennies in it. I could show you, but I have found dimes and pennies incredibly in a bird bath. Okay. Dirty water filled with leaves. The voice said, clean the bird bath. 
I go over there's a diamond. <laughs> but this is the one that convinces wow. me of afterlife and the mystical at part. I make the bed when I get up in the morning and I go around to the other side. It's still the same bed my wife and I slept in. Yeah. Pull everything back and tighten it up. I pick up the sheets and the blankets in my hand to pull them towards me. And they flew out of my hand and flopped over on the other side of the bed. And what's lying on the sheet covering the mattress, a dime and a penny. Wow. Now there is no explanation for that. They, cause it's under blankets and sheets. It's not, Oh, it fell out of your pocket. I'm not sleeping with money in my pocket, but right. I, when I, it was incredible. So I know that she's around. Um, yes, yeah, my, my wife is mentioning finding pennies. That's uh, my wife. Grandchildren yeah. called them pennies from heaven. See, that's yeah. the part that blows my mind. I said, when my mother died, I was finding all these pennies that also I couldn't explain. You know, it's like you go to the mailbox. There isn't any penny in your driveway. You come back, you find a half a dozen pennies. So I said, this has got to be for my mother. And this grandchild said, yeah, they're pennies from heaven. That <laughs> blew my mind. He was yeah. this little pipsqueak to share that and say that. And as soon as he said it, okay, you know, it's a message. And let me mention the nine. Um, what organ in my body, you know, mind body, what organ in my body is going to have a problem when my wife dies? My heart. It, the rhythm went nuts. So I went down to the emergency room, what's called auricular fibrillation. So I go to the emergency room and as I walk in, I hear a voice yell, put him in room nine. I'm hardly in the emergency room and they're yelling, put him in room nine. Then they said, we don't have a room for you upstairs yet. The next day they did, it was eight one nine, which adds up to nine nine and eight is a new beginning. Then they give you your wristband. My identification number is eight nine nine six six three three. And every visit number has also added up to all nines. Wow. One that added up to our anniversary, seven eleven. Wow. And I was upset that day because I was always saying to the nurses, it's all gonna add up to nine. And then I looked, oh, it didn't. And then I realized, oh, it's my anniversary, 7-Eleven. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I saved all those because, again, you can't explain it, you know, in a rational way. Yeah. Yeah. My, my wife says that her mom, my mother-in-law, found a penny on a busy street in Italy. <laughs> yeah. So, and she's all, I, I see this all the time. We're, we're walking and she'll be like, Oh, there's a penny from my dad. And I'm like, wow, that's because it happens all the time. It's a sign to you, you know, that this is the right place and everything's okay. And I, and especially when I go shopping, um, you know, you could say, oh, well, people leave pennies. But I hear the voice say, go on aisle four. And I go on aisle four. And once there were three dimes and three pennies lying on the belt, you know, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's just amazing. But you have to see, again, you talked about meditating. You don't hear the voice if you don't quiet your mind. Yeah. So it, it's when you're either doing something, um, you know, that that is creative. 
See, what I find is, let me put it this way. If you lose track of time, that's the healthiest state you can be in. And I found that when I did portrait painting of our family and pets and everything, I, I had back pain and injury and I couldn't stand up. And I noticed then how come you can stand up and do a painting? How come you go in the operating room? And I thought, wow, that's right. I don't hurt when I'm creating or helping someone else. I could stand for hours. And then when my painting was done, it was like, oh, I got to go lie down. Or wow. even literally, sometimes I'd lie down on the floor in the operating room and they took the patient out. Um, wow. But th that is such a healing state. Yeah. Because again, you're in a trance, meditating, you're creating, and your body is in a whole other place. That's just more evidence of what you said early on, and that is you're not this body. Right. You're not this body. You're yeah. just the, you're the controller of this body, maybe. Yeah. Remember yelling as a kid, who did that when I didn't die? Because yeah. I, I was looking forward to dying. It was fascinating and interesting. Wow. And then I don't die, and I'm yelling, who did that? <laughs> I was mad. <laughs> but I that's when I said, oh, God makes a decision, not you, so stop yelling, you know? Yeah, wow. It gave me a feeling that there must be somebody in charge. You know. Well, Dr. Siegel, I could talk to you literally all day. And I know you, you uh, I'm sure, have other things going on. So I want to say, again, thank you again for coming on. You are, you're one of my heroes. Like you know, one, one closing point for all your audience. You have to be blind or deaf tomorrow. Which would you choose? Are you asking me? Yeah, you might as well answer. If I had to be blind or deaf, I would say um, if I had to choose? Yes. Deaf. All right. Except for musicians, that's what most people choose. Let me let Helen Keller teach you something. I've heard of the stars of the rainbows of the play of light on the waves. These I would like to see but far more than sight. I wish for my ears to be open. The voice of a friend, the imaginations of Mozart. Deafness is darker by far than blindness. Wow. Hey, you're not going to be on this show if you're deaf. And what I learned was listen to people. When you listen, they thank you for the wonderful advice you gave them and you haven't said a damn thing but they have talked to themselves and heard themselves so that's the key i've had people literally in the office i had to bust out laughing because i listened to a woman for two hours without saying a goddamn thing and at the end of two hours i never forget her saying that is the greatest conversation i've ever had with anyone but I knew she heard herself for the first time ever and then went home and did what was necessary. Yeah. Wow. So, so learn to listen and listen to yourself. Keep a journal. I mean, we should come back to my next show, 365 prescriptions for the soul. I found a journal from 1996 that I'm reading every day. Again, all things that I've written because 
if you keep a journal, it keeps you aware of life. And as my wife said to me, there's nothing funny in your journal. <laughs> and I said, my life isn't funny as if, you know, doctor and all the things going. And then she told me funny stories that happened at the hospital that had them all laughing at dinner. We have five kids. And I thought, wow, she really woke me up to keep track of the good things that happened too. And those began to go into my journal. So keep your journal folks. That uh, I definitely want to have you back on, you know, I think you and I are both co-authors in a book coming up here soon too. So um, that that's, you have to pay me twice as much for, to come back. <laughs> Done. Checks okay. in the mail. <laughs> Dr. Siegel, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Hang on. I'm going to end the live stream here, but thank you so much. You are a gift to this world and, and a blessing to me. So thank you. I'm feeling good. Good. Hang tight. Hang on for me for a minute. I'm going to end this. Thank you. What's it what's it say? Stop global whining. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you for being yeah. here. We'll see you guys. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you so much.